He became sin. He was made sin. Now he's in the pit of hell. He's down there. He's in there. Suffering like no man has ever suffered. Did you know God has never, ever sent but one man to hell? His name is Jesus. Oh, I'm telling you, Jesus is in the middle of that pit. He's suffering the very base end punishment. He is suffering all that there is to suffer. There is no suffering left apart from him. His emaciated, poured out, little, little wormy spirit is down in the bottom of that thing, and the devil thinks he's got him destroyed. But all of a sudden, God started talking. And when God starts talking, can't nobody get away from it. I mean, hell itself ain't far enough. It ain't deep enough and it ain't wide enough to keep the word of God from coming in there. Jesus, Jesus, full of your sin, full of your sickness, full of your disease, full of your debts, full of your doubt, full of your unbelief. Full of your breakdown, full of your poverty, full of your bruise, full of your captivity, full of that redemptible thing that sin has ever been able to create and the foul offspring of sickness and disease. Went into that place, suffered there as if he had done Adam's awful transgression of high treason to God. Went into that hell hole went into the bottom of the bottomless pit. You can't go any deeper than he went. No man has ever suffered the penalty for all sin except this one. He suffered for all sin, all sickness, all disease, all poverty, all that sin and his foul father the devil brought into this earth. And three days and nights, he suffered there. He suffered there. He suffered there. He hurt and he suffered. Ah, oh, but let me tell you something. It's recorded in the book of Hebrews. You can find every word there that God spoke when he raised him from the dead. And again, he saith, when he brought in the first begotten from the dead, let all the angels worship him. And when God said that, and that jubilee announcement rolled down across the eons of time and the limitlessness of space and struck the very gates of hell and rattled it loose and jerked its keys out of the hole and went down into that pit. And there, there, there in that pit, the only born son of the living God was reborn. Hallelujah. He was reborn. I can't understand Christians that refuse to believe that Jesus went to hell. I want to tell you something. If he didn't go, you're going to have to. There is a man in the Godhead, a born again. He got born again in the pit of hell. He was made to be sin for us who knew he knew no sin. But Jesus got in there. He got in there. He was made sin with your sin. He was cursed with your curse. He suffered the price for Adam's failure to walk in the blessing. And now he is in the pit of hell. And now he is suffering the suffering. Ah, ha, ha. 
Jesus had to go through that same spiritual death in order to pay the price. Now, it wasn't the physical death on the cross that paid the price for sin, because if it had been, any prophet of God that had died for the last couple of thousand years before that could have paid that price. It wasn't physical death. Anybody could do that. He was the first one to ever be born again! I see it! I see it! A born again man defeated all of hell! again than he was. Whoa! I'm born after him. So he stepped below him and made himself obedient unto death. We talked about that in our, in our service. We, we, he went into hell. There he paid the price. God spoke the word of resurrection and he came up out of there. His spirit was reborn and a reborn man ripped hell apart took the keys of death, took the keys of hell, and came out of there and said, I am he that was once dead, but I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys. The Spirit of God spoke to me, and he said, Son, realize this. Now follow me in this. Don't let your tradition trip you up. He said, think this way. A twice-born man whipped Satan in his own domain. And I threw my Bible <laughs> like that. I said, what? He said a born-again man defeated Satan. The firstborn of many brethren defeated him. He said, you are the very image and the very copy of that one. I said, goodness gracious sakes alive. And just, I began to see what had gone on in there. And I said, well, now you don't mean, you couldn't dare mean that I could have done the same thing. He said, oh yeah, if you'd known that had the knowledge of the Word of God that he did, you could have done the same thing. Because you're a reborn man too. And Jesus volunteered to go to hell. I'm going to tell you something. Ain't nobody ever got out of there. The only thing he had to go by was the promise of God that I'm reading you right now. He didn't have some special revelation from heaven between he and God the Father. No, the Bible said he emptied himself when he came and he saw himself in the word and said the spirit of the Lord is upon me he found himself in the word the voice you just heard may be familiar to many of you listening the gentleman you heard in all of those clips is Kenneth Copeland he is a major influence in the word of faith teaching and the charismatic movement now I played those clips and singling out his teaching because I want to focus on something today involving a teaching that he has perpetuated for years and he still continues to currently. We know that Jesus went to hell. A lot of people have trouble with that. I got in a lot of trouble for preaching it. It was an evening service. And I, I, you know, I just preached Mark 11, 23, 24, and 25, and, and I got over into that Jesus went to hell and he suffered there, and, and, and then he was born again in hell and rose from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. And I'd been on this for a while. Now, as someone who was in the Word of Faith movement for a, quite a number of years and familiar with the teachings of Kenneth Hagin and such, this was something that I never heard. 
And so when I came across this after coming out of this movement, it shocked me because I was not aware of this teaching within the word of faith. And and I would dare say that there are many people listening, even not listening, that are not familiar with this, and they are in the word of faith movement. They consider themselves people who are followers of Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, and they may even look up to them, revere them as faithful Bible teachers. But today I wanted to look at this. We're going to hear other clips from other leaders as well who espouse this. And I'll mention some names of people that have taught this in the past and tried to clean this up a little bit. We're also going to look at the source where I believe Kenneth Copeland was influenced in this teaching and to see if the information coming from here that I'm going to read to you um, also potentially parallels with some things that Kenneth Copeland has not only said publicly, but has written on his website. And we're going to look at scripture and see what scripture has to say about this. And it's not going to be exhaustive in teaching. As always, I'm going to encourage you to go back to the Bible and to study things on your own, to ask your pastor questions and to delve more into this because it can get really complicated as far as the question of where did Jesus go for three days and three nights. We'll touch a little bit on some of the verses that uh, that some of these teachers use that hold to this teaching that Jesus suffered in hell and that's where our atonement was completed and why this is problematic. So I hope that you enjoy this episode today and you stick with me as we go through this teaching. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the word and loving the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. There are many other people that have done videos regarding this problematic teaching of Jesus suffering in hell for our atonement, having to be born again in hell, taking on Satan's nature. Again, some of this may sound foreign to some people, and some of this may sound like old news, but I wanted to cover it for those that may not have heard this teaching and may have been a part of the Word of Faith and are completely unaware of this teaching that was written, that was published, that was ministered from public platforms and was shared by numerous well-known ministers throughout the years. One minister that may be well known to many women is Joyce Meyer, and she not only ministered it years ago, but she also wrote a book that has now been changed, and you can't find the original uh, book of it unless you go on eBay to find the older ones if if people are selling them, but... In the, I, I believe it's called The Most Important Decision You'll Ever Make. She actually talks about this in the book. Now, it's my understanding when she reprinted it that there was tr- there was a, an attempt to clean that up. But at any rate, that's out there. I also found it interesting. I came across just some clips here and there I wanted to share with you that of people that you may know currently that are alluding to this or, or just saying that they believe this when they are ministering. Jesus Christ, he pays a price for us to be made right with God. Jesus goes to hell. I believe he went to Hades, he went down and descended into the depths of the earth for three days and he pays for the sin of mankind. The Spirit came on King David and he wrote Psalms 16 and he said, when I was on the earth, I memorized that Psalm. He said, because this is what happened, he said, I actually went to hell. I was in the belly of the earth and he said, in the belly of the earth, I rehearsed Psalm 16. Isn't that amazing? So he said his whole uh, teenage life, he spent reviewing and looking throughout the whole Word of God in the Old Testament to find himself. And he said, I had all these key verses that were coaching me into what I was supposed to be doing and who I was. And so Psalm 16, he said, 
was used when he was in the belly of the earth. And so he started to talk to me, he said, most people think about the suffering that I did before I died on the cross, the beatings, um, the imprisonments. But he said it went far beyond that. It went far beyond the cross. It went far beyond that, Kevin. He said, I spent those days in the belly of the earth alone without God. And it shocked me at first because I never thought that. He said, I relinquished my communication with the Father for those days. He said, the only thing that I had was those Psalms that I had memorized. And he said, I rehearsed those and I kept telling myself that there was coming that point if I set the Lord always before me. And because he was at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And it talked about how he would be brought out, that he would not allow his body to see decay. His soul would not be left in hell. And um, he told me, he said, I rehearsed those things. He said, those demons were telling me that I had failed, that I had been left alone and my mission was a failure. He told me, uh, Satan told me, he said, you should have taken the deal I gave you in the desert where I offer you to you all the kingdoms of the world. He said, you, you could have had them if you bowed down to me, but look at you now, you've lost everything. He said, I just kept rehearsing the word of God. And so he explained this to me. And as he was telling me this, he started to sob and it touched me. He said, I cleared out a space in your own soul, Kevin, when I did this, because when you pray, you pray from the depths. The first clip that we heard was from Todd White, and this was uh, several years ago when this interview was done, but this was something that he professed then. I don't know what he professes now. The second one was recent. It was in the past year or two. This was from Kevin Zadai, and he's sharing one of his many trips to heaven when he talked to Jesus. And I want you to notice some of the verbiage. It's very similar to Kenneth Copeland when he talks about Jesus found himself in the Word. That even as a teenager, he says that Jesus found himself in the Word so he can remind him, uh, Jesus is the Word. <laughs> I think Scripture tells us this in John 1, right? And, and Jesus was God, so he also makes this distinction. It's almost as if that, that, he, that he was separated from God. Well, Jesus is God, and he never ceased being God. So um, I wanted to, to play those so you could hear that. And also, too, in case anyone has any questions about Kenneth Hagin teaching these things, here's, here's a couple of clips for you. Did he need to be begotten or born? Because he became like we were separated from God because he tasted spiritual death for every man and his spirit and inner man went to hell in my place physical death wouldn't remove your sins he's tasted death for every man he's talking about tasting spiritual death Jesus is the first person that was ever born again why did his spirit need to be born again? Because it was estranged from God. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, you're playing a lot of clips that are older. Don, what are you doing? Don't you have anything current? Uh, well, the, the most recent clip I played was from a couple years ago from Kenneth Copeland. But if you need more proof, I actually found an Easter service from 2020 where it was not Kenneth Copeland that ministered, but it was his ministry. And the man ministering is George Pearson's. And I want you to listen to some of the things that he says. The title of the message is From the Cross to the Throne, which I found very ironic because that title is the same title as a book that we're going to look at here in just a moment. Have a listen to some of the things that George Pearson says, who is the son-in-law to Kenneth Copeland. Jesus hung 
on the cross for you and for me. Something very significant took place between the cross and the throne. Some people don't know about it. Others don't talk about it. What happened after the cross? When Jesus died, his spirit was ushered into hell. He had to go to hell in order to bear the curse that was brought on by man. If a man was the key to the fall, then a man had to be the key to redemption. And that included a man going to hell for you and me. So many people stop, stop at the cross. They stop at the tomb, but they don't realize what he did after that, what took place after that. Wicked had to be kept separated so they wouldn't taint the new heaven and the new earth. Hell was built for our protection. And Jesus had to go there to bear the curse that we deserved. What happened when Jesus was ushered into hell? Jesus' spirit became impregnated with the sin nature of the world. He sank to the lowest depths of Hades. Satan and his cohorts surrounded him. The entire host of hell came upon him. The agony was beyond words. Psalm 22:12 describes what began to happen. What did Jesus experience in hell? His spirit was there to suffer as he paid man's penalty for sin. Galatians 3.13 says, He was made a curse for us. He found no ease or rest for the soles of his feet. He had a trembling heart and failing of eyes from disappointment of heart. He was stricken with fainting of mind and languishing of spirit. His life hung in doubt before him. He feared night and day. He did not have any assurance of his life. This is what Jesus was experiencing in hell. In verse 60, 59, he was afflicted with great plagues. In verse 61, he was tormented by every sickness and every plague that is not even listed in the book of the law. It is a curse that Jesus bore in the pit of hell. This affliction of the curse, it went on and on and on. Three days and nights, it continued uninterrupted. Satan had thought he had Jesus. I'm finally conquering the kingdom he proudly boasts. And all seemed hopeless until a sound from heaven. There was a sound from above that shook all of hell. They stopped what they were doing to Jesus and they looked around and they looked upward and a voice, the voice thundered from heaven throughout the caverns of hell. It is enough. The price is paid. Loose him and let him go. Satan's plot was beginning to come undone. The plan of redemption had entered into its final stages. The mystery, the mystery of redemption that was hidden throughout the ages in scriptures was finally being fulfilled. See, we don't stop at the cross. We don't stop at the tomb. We don't even stop in the grave. We don't stop when Jesus was resurrected. No, we continue on from the place that we were raised up with him, you and I are experiencing resurrection life and coronavirus or any other disease 
or infirmity or sickness cannot exist in a body that is filled with the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've listened to some clips, you have an idea of what this teaching sounds like and what people say, and it's pretty consistent. I wanted to share some resources with you in doing some more thorough research on this. And obviously this topic of Word of Faith, there's no way, absolutely no way in this episode to delve into every aspect of the Word of Faith. And even this topic in and of itself within Word of Faith is really just scratching the surface of this. And I would encourage you, if you have the time, you can look into some of the resources that I'm going to share with you. I have a couple uh, that that I found helpful. One of the books I came across when I first came out of this movement was called A Different Gospel by D.R. McConnell. It's an older book. It was written in the early 80s. And you probably won't find it in print any longer, so you'll have to get it used. You can go on Thrift Books or eBay and find it. There's a more current book that's also very helpful. It's called The Word Faith Controversy, Understanding the Health and Wealth Gospel by Robert Bowman. This is also another um, very helpful book, and it goes more in depth. And he actually talks in this book about some of the history of the Word of Faith and looking at the issue of um, E.W. Kenyon, who we're going to be looking at in just a moment, his affiliation with Word of Faith, how he influenced uh, such people as Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, and others that espouse some of these teachings. Now, E.W. Kenyon, according to what Bowman says in his book, the argument that he makes is, uh, unlike D.R. McConnell, for example, who said pretty much everything that Hagin and Copeland and others taught was stemmed back from Kenyon, what Bowman notices is that uh, the word of faith is a combination of Pentecostalism, uh, charismatic beliefs, and new thought, which is where E.W. Kenyon gleaned a lot of his understanding from. It wasn't 100% new thought, but it was he was very much influenced by new thought, um, the metaphysical understanding and beliefs. And so I wanted to share some things with you from this book, from the Word Faith Controversy. Now, if, if you haven't heard the name E.W. Kenyon, um, again, I would just suggest that you do some some study on his background if you want to know more. But E.W. Kenyon was around from 1867 to 1948, and um, he was really a radio evangelist. And he was um, probably more so the grandfather of the Word of Faith movement. I know Hagen is known as the uh, the father of the Word of Faith movement. Kenyon would be more so along the lines of the grandfather because of his beliefs. Now, here are some of the beliefs that's on this in this book. It's on page thirty seven of the Word Faith Controversy that Bowman notes are some of the doctrines of the Word Faith teaching that originated either from Kenyon or received their distinctive formulation from him. Human nature is spirit, soul, and body, but is most fundamentally spirit. God created the world by speaking words of faith and does everything else by faith, and we are intended to exercise the same kind of faith. In the fall, human beings took on Satan's nature and forfeited to Satan their divine dominion, making him the legal God of this world. Jesus died spiritually as well as physically, taking on Satan's nature and suffering in hell to redeem us and then was born again. By our positive confession with the God kind of faith, we may overcome sickness and poverty. So those are some of the beliefs that you may be familiar with in the Word of Faith teaching. And 
I'm, I'm certainly familiar with, with several of these. One of the things I was not familiar with was the teaching of Jesus dying spiritually as well as physically and taking on Satan's nature, suffering in hell to redeem us and was born again. That to me does it sounds extremely unbiblical. And I think we're going to find that as we go along today in, in looking at some of the passages. Now, there's lots of ground I want to cover here. So I want to share some things with you from this book, and then I'm going to be looking at several other resources as we go. In chapter 12 called The fall and rise of the born-again Jesus. Robert Bowman notes that the word faith teachers, what, what they actually speak and teach, is that Jesus died spiritually. And he notes that Kenyon and the modern word faith teachers all teach that Jesus died spiritually as well as physically. And Kenyon's theological reason for this belief is that a spiritual death was absolutely necessary if mankind was to be saved from its spiritual disease of sin. Hagen and Copeland taught the same thing. Now, I know that there are people that will disagree with that, but they most certainly did. There's audio, video, and there are books to prove this, uh, some of their writings. So Hagen, for example, had written, if sin were only physical, then each one of us dying physically could atone for ourselves. But no, sin is spiritual. Jesus' spiritual death is also said to have entailed going to hell and suffering further under the dominion of Satan. Hagen noted in one of his writings when addressing 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he said, quote, Jesus tasted death, spiritual death for every man. Sin is more than a physical act. It is a spiritual act. He became what we were, that we might become what he is. Jesus became sin. His spirit was separated from God. Bowman has uh, quite a bit of notations in here and some other areas to focus on this book. So I wanted to share a couple of things in there with you from that book. Now, I want to go on to E.W. Kenyon's book, and I actually took time to read it and spent time in the areas related to this topic today. But Kenyon actually wrote a book, and it was titled, What Happened from the Cross to the Throne? And I want to read some of these things to you that Kenyon said that I found alarming when I was reading through it. And, and to give you an idea of what his belief system was, because, again, Copeland, Hagen, uh, several of these people, they gleaned, it would seem, from his, his teachings. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that Kenneth Copeland has on his website, it's a two-part article, and it's titled, What Happened from the Cross to the Throne? It's the same title as Kenyon's book. So we're going to see if it shares some of the same sentiments. So in Kenyon's book, he talks about establishing righteousness. I'm going to just touch on some of the things that he mentions in his book and, 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 and basically try to do a summary. But he does focus on sin consciousness versus, versus righteousness consciousness. And um, he talks about the incarnation, uh, that Jesus was sinless. Now, there's things that he says in here that are true. And you will find that even in false teaching, you're going to see things that are said that are true. The problem is when you find the error that's sprinkled in and the concern and question that could be raised is when you're saying that Jesus had to go to hell in order to pay for our sin, what he did on the cross was not sufficient for that, that that was just a mere physical death and that he had to die spiritually then the question that comes to mind is, are you talking about the same Jesus of the Bible? And so I think that that is a, that is a fair question to ask when, when you're hearing things like this. Kenyon said different things about the blessing of the new creation um, is to be established in righteousness, to acquire a righteousness consciousness, and saying that we have a sin consciousness and we have had a weak consciousness that has kept us slaves of fear. He said that sin consciousness has made slaves of the human race. It has destroyed the initiative and multitudes. It has been the oldest and most persistent enemy of faith. 
You cannot have faith in the word when you're under condemnation, Kenyon said. And so he goes on in his book, Kenyon says, we can do things for men's spirits that Christ could not do. So Kenyon goes on to say, by his union with Christ, he has become not only an heir to the authority in that name, but he has become a present holder of that authority. He may use it now. When Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth, that authority was for the new creation, not for himself. This righteousness makes a man actually one with Christ. It is given to man a creative ability, a dominating spirit. He is an overcomer. He is a master. The new love of the master has taken possession of him. He has become an actual Jesus man. He takes Jesus's place on earth. He is not like the men under the old covenant. They had limited righteousness. He possesses unlimited righteousness. And through the book, you'll hear him talk about sense knowledge that that people in the world, the Pharisees and those that couldn't see who Jesus really was and crucified him, for example, they had sense knowledge. The disciples, they couldn't fully understand who Jesus was. They had sense knowledge. There's a distinction made between the physical and the spiritual um, in this book as well. And there is this... um, this really heavy undercurrent that you'll see through the book that he talks about highlighting and emphasizing the spiritual over the physical. During the incarnation in his book, he breaks it down in different sections as far as what happened from the cross to the throne. So during the incarnation, he notes that Jesus was sinless. He said, it is very evident that the life that is imparted to a man in the new birth enters his bloodstream. A scientist has just discovered that he can tell if a man has eternal life by his blood. I don't know where he's getting that from. When we became partakers of the divine nature, our spirits are recreated. There is a union in some way of spirit and blood, how we do not know. Thus, our bloodstream is cleansed of the sin that has come down through the blood of the human race. Kenyon said, Jesus was conceived without sin. His body was not mortal. Now, this is the part that that some of this, when I read in this book, it started to make sense to me as to why and how they try to rationalize what, what is taught in the word of faith. Kenyon says, Jesus's body did not become mortal until the father laid our sin nature upon him when he hung on the cross. The moment that he became sin, his body became mortal. Only then could he die. Well, that's interesting to me because Jesus was scourged prior to the crucifixion. So was he not mortal then? Because his body was marred beyond recognition. He's trying to say that Jesus was neither mortal nor immortal, but he was a perfect man. And he didn't become mortal until he came on the cross and that he became sin. And he said his body became mortal. Only then could he die. And Kenyon says, when this happened, spiritual death, the nature of Satan took possession of his spirit. And that he references 2 Corinthians 5.21, Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're going to talk about that near the end. And Copeland and Hagen also, the, the ones that focus on this in the word of faith, they will focus on these certain passages. And he says that this phase of the incarnation is of vital importance to us. Now, as he goes on, this is what Kenyon says about what happened in the garden. Kenyon says he was facing, Jesus was facing the fact of being made sin. His disciples did not know this. It was not a theological or a metaphysical substitution, but he was to actually become a substitute for fallen man. He says he had not yet partaken of his sin or mortality of his sin. Did you catch that? He had not yet partaken of his sin. Jesus was sinless. He had no sin. There was no sin for him to to repent of or to atone for. His atonement was for our sin, to be the propitiation for our sin, to be the spotless lamb. And and again, we'll talk about 2 Corinthians 5.21 in a bit, and I'll share some resources with you and and some of the, the insight that I found from those. 
He says, you can see by this that no one could kill Jesus. His body was not mortal. It did not become mortal until he hung on the cross. Again, bizarre teaching. I never heard that in the word of faith, but you can kind of see if you understand some of the word of faith teaching, then it starts to make sense. It doesn't mean it's true. It just starts to make sense how they're getting around this stuff and trying to explain it. Kenyon says, as man's sin substitute, Jesus must go to the place where the man who rejects him must go. So he's trying to set up the whole belief of that Jesus had to descend into hell in order to pay for our sins. He says it was more than a separation from his father for three days and three nights. He was to partake of spiritual death, the nature of the adversary. It has been said that God could not do a thing like that. That is sense, knowledge, reasoning. Now, if you read some of the older uh, publications of Copeland and Hagen and others, you're going to find that they will say things like this, that Jesus took on Satan's nature. And that is the verbiage that they use for that, that Jesus took on Satan's nature that he was estranged from God, as you heard Hagen say, that he died a spiritual death. He had to um, go to hell in order to f- make the full payment for our sins. Yeah, it's it's um, it's um rather interesting, to, to say the least, to hear some of these things. Uh, Kenyon says Satan would become his master. Satan would become the master of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Where is that in Scripture? He says, this was the tragedy of the garden. Jesus was to suffer the agonies of the lost. He was to be reckoned among transgressors. He was to bear the diseases and sins of the human race. He was to be forsaken by his father. It is no wonder that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Kenyon said, I have come to believe that there was deeper spiritual agony in the garden than on the cross. The battle in the garden was spiritual. Sense knowledge cannot grasp it. He had broken into the sense knowledge realm. He had purposed to redeem man out of the hand of the enemy. To do it, he must surrender himself to that enemy. There are two great forces here, one seen, the other unseen. They are both dominated by Satan. Satan ruled the Sanhedrin, the Senate, and the Roman governor. He was seeking to dominate the spirit of the Son of God and bring him into subjection to himself. This seems to deny the sovereignty of God. And the fact that that Satan did not have complete control. He was the little G of this world. He's the he's the ruler of this world, the little G. And that has to do, again, with sin nature and such like that. And the, the tyranny of Satan for those that are lost, those that are born again, we know that we don't live under the tyranny of Satan. We live in a fallen world that is that has been subjected to futility. Um, and some of the things that even I've heard Kenneth, Hag- uh, Kenneth Copeland say about God there's several things I've heard Kenneth Copeland say, but he basically said, um, well, I don't want to I don't want to spoil it for you. I'm going to get to that in just a little bit um, in the two articles, which I read those as well, that are titled from the the cross to the throne, what happened from the cross to the throne. And so um, Kenyon goes on in his book to say that Jesus knew the hour was coming when Satan would have him under his control. Again, we don't see that in Scripture. That's not stated at all that that's what took place but yet this is what's I- inferred from all of this it's it's assumed that this is what took place Kenyon at the at the the cross he says here's a picture of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ in the ninth verse Isaiah says he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death the word death is plural in the Hebrew indicating that Jesus died twice on the cross this is what Kenyon said he died spiritually the moment that God laid our sin upon him. The moment that him who knew no sin became sin, that precious body became mortal and he could die physically. Now, Bowman covers this in his book. And so that's why I would suggest you reading it. 
But Bowman does address these issues, in, like in Kenyon's book, and he mentions the fact that there are Hebrew words that are plural, but that doesn't, um, when they're used, but that doesn't mean that they're automatically imply more than one in, in what he's saying. So I would encourage you just to read that book because he, he makes a good case for saying that's not what that means there. And we know that God was sovereign in that as well, that this was preor- this was preordained, this was predestined from the foundations of the world. So again, to make such little of God as, as what happens in the word of faith many times, whether intentional or unintentional, in saying God cannot intervene, he's done everything he can, and so now he's dependent upon us, it really diminishes who God is. Kenyon notes at the point of the cross, he says, you can see him hanging there on the cross. He is paying no attention to the mob about him. The deep physical agony, the awful shame of hanging naked in the presence of his enemies, the knowledge that his father had forsaken him is breaking his heart. He remembers Israel's history. Jehovah had heard their cry and delivered them. But he says the strangest words, but thou art holy. What does that mean? He is becoming sin. Can you hear those parched lips cry? I am a worm and no man. It reminded me of uh, Kenneth Copeland's clip when he talks about that little wormy self went into hell. He he really, um, unfortunately, the, the wording that Copeland, for example, uses many times, again, it greatly diminishes God. It sounds like it greatly diminishes Jesus. He says he is spiritually dead, the worm. He has become what God, what John's gospel 3.14 said. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. He had been lifted up as a serpent. Serpent is Satan. Uh, once again, I would encourage you to go look at the account in the Old Testament where the, the serpent, is, the bronze serpent is lifted up on a pole. See what happened, why the serpent was lifted up, what God told Moses that would happen if the people looked upon the serpent and and just do do a good bible study on that as well because that is that is in the uh, John chapter 3 where uh, Nicodemus and Jesus are talking and he's talking about regeneration and the new birth and this applies to that as well so i would encourage you to look at that Kenyon says Jesus knew he was going to be lifted up united with the adversary that holy man of god and the psalmist sees him as the worm the reproach of the people As he's talking about the cross, he says, Satan became his master. You remember that he uttered the sentence, it is finished. You can now understand that he did not mean that he had finished his substitutionary work, but that he had finished the work the father gave him to do first. And he believed, Kenyon believed that it was um, finishing, fulfilling the law. That's what he means and teaches in his book, that he kept the Mosaic law, and that's what he believes that Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. Kenyon says, now he is to become a substitute and deal with the sin problem. So apparently on the cross, he didn't deal with the sin problem. Um, He is to put sin away. He is to satisfy the claims of justice against the human race. He could not do that in his physical life. Sin basically is a spiritual thing, so it must be dealt with in the spirit. If Jesus paid the penalty of sin on the cross, then sin is but a physical act. If his death paid it, then every man could die for himself. I hope that this verbiage is sounding familiar because it's the same thing that Kenneth Hagin wrote and said. It's the same thing Kenneth Copeland wrote and said. They They were influenced by Kenyon. That's the point of all this. They were influenced by Kenyon. And just as a side note, um, when you look at a different gospel in that book and you see the many notations that D.R. McConnell made when he did his dissertation at Oral Roberts University during the 80s on this subject, you'll find that there are several books that Hagen plagiarized from E.W. Kenyon. And there are notations in there that show decent chunks of books 
of the different areas where Hagen plagiarized from Kenyon. I can't remember how many books it was. I think it was 12 or 18, somewhere around there, that he plagiarized portions of Kenyon's books. And he claimed them for himself and said that God told him those things. And one of the books that is re- is mentioned is what happened from the cross to the throne. And Hagen writes a, a book with a different title, but he uh, plagiarized. There's one um, cl- chunk in there that he plagiarized from Kenneth from, from E.W. Kenyon's book. And he put it in his book, and that part matches up word for word with what was in Kenyon's book of what happened from the cross to the throne. So when you go on to continue to read Kenyon's book, he says, When Jesus died, his spirit was taken by the adversary and carried to the place where the sinner's spirit goes when he dies. And when he cried, it is finished. It was the end of the Abrahamic covenant. He will continue to go on and break these sections down. I want to get to the point where... Um, He says that he was made alive twice, that he died in the spirit first. Um, But I want to get to the point where he talks about what happened three nights and three days and three nights. Kenyon says in that section, God looks upon sin as a spiritual thing. He did not lay our physical diseases upon the spirit of Christ, but our spiritual diseases. Says then disease is a spiritual fact, just as sin is a spiritual fact. It was God who laid our diseases upon him. It may be that we are so conscious of our senses that it was necessary that God deal with the sense man before he dealt with the spiritual man. We should notice this fact that man is in the same class with God. He is an eternal being. He is a spirit being. He was so created that he could become a partaker of God's nature. He was wounded in his spirit with our iniquities. The chastisement that could bring peace to us was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. They are not physical stripes. It is justice dealing with our substitute in the spirit realm. Okay, <laughs> I I real I had to read reread that over because I thought, what do you mean the stripes are not physical? He was beaten, he was physically scourged and beaten with the cat of nine tails before he was crucified. Kenyon does reference First Timothy three sixteen, and I, we're gonna again we're gonna look at that particular passage here in a bit where he says he was justified in spirit. He says he is first born out of spiritual death, the first person who was ever born again. The first person who was ever born again. I'm looking to see if there's anything else I want to share with you. I think there's one more thing. But as you can see, the main point of me sharing this was to to show you that there is a correlation with what he is saying and um, and and what Kenneth Copeland uh, is is saying and what he's going to say as I share some of the things in the article that, that the two part article he wrote. Now, now this one last thing from E.W. Kenyon's book I want to share with you. It's the section, What Satan Saw on the Day of Pentecost. I thought this was another interesting, concerning paragraph that he noted. He said, Satan had conquered Jesus on the cross. I just want to pause right there. Satan had conquered Jesus on the cross. Where is that in scripture? I I have a really hard time recognizing the Jesus that's mentioned here. Satan conquered Jesus on the cross. He had stirred the selfish hearts of the high priesthood until in a jealous frenzy they had crucified him. The father had laid on him the sins of the world. Jesus was left alone. God turned his back on him. Satan triumphantly bore his spirit in the dark regions of Hades. All the sufferings and torments that hell could produce were heaped upon Jesus. When he had suffered hell's agonies for three days and three nights, the Supreme Court of the universe cried, Enough. Now, George Pearson's also used this type of language. I heard him when he was ministering. I listened to this message that he did, and he used the the types of wordage, the the types of verbiage that I heard. And I remember the Supreme Court of the universe. So again, Kenyon is an influence in this teaching. 
Um, He says that the Supreme Court of the universe cried enough. He had paid the penalty and met the claims of justice. Satan saw him justified. God made him alive in spirit right there in the presence of the cohorts of Hades. And Jesus was made a new creation. Jesus was made a new creation. Now, the question could be posed, is this a denial of the fact that Jesus was preeminent? That he always existed. He was in the beginning because he's God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God. He has never stopped being God for one second, not even in his earthly ministry. He added on humanity, but he never diminished in his divinity. He never stopped being God for one moment. And so to claim that Jesus became sin, meaning that he he took on Satan's sinful nature, and had to be born again. Being born again is for those who have sinned. That is for someone who is um, is spiritually dead, that ha- is separated from God and needs regeneration. They need the new birth, and like John 3 talks about, Ezekiel 36, that's paralleled with that, that we've talked about recently. This is reserved for someone who's fallen. Jesus was not fallen. There's a big difference between him having our sins imputed to him and him being a sinner and needing to suffer hell. And let's not also forget this either. You know, there's there's this teaching and some of these things that go around, and I know I've talked about this quite a while back about, about hell. And the thing is, is that hell has been viewed by many of us, myself included, at one time or another. Um, if we've been in these types of movements and teachings, There may be a false perception, even if you're not in one of these movements, you may have a false perception of what hell is. Hell is not Satan's romper room. It is not a playground for Satan. This is where the judgment, God's wrath, his judgment, his just judgment for rebellion and sin takes place for eternity. This is the second death. This is what happens at the end of time. Now, there are also other teachings, and I've talked about this before, and I encourage you to do Bible study on it if you want more understanding of uh, the understanding of the use of the terms Hades, Sheol, Tartarus, uh, Gehenna, and understanding the difference between Hades and hell and, and knowing what that means, um, Hades. And so it's good to understand what that means. Now, I wanted to go into the articles. I, don't, I want to talk about some of the things that Kenneth Copeland said, and they may sound repetitive because some of them do match up with what E.W. Kenyon said, because he talks about the need for a spiritual death, not just physical, that if it was only physical, as we heard in the audio clips, that any man could have done it. And Kenneth Copeland has said several times from the platform that one born-again man Paid, the, paid for us completely. It was a born-again man and that we have the same power that he had. One, one, one born-again human being defeated all of hell. So in part one of his article that he wrote from the cross of the throne. This is taken straight from Kenneth Copeland Ministries. It was written in 2015. It's straight from his website. He says, where did this leave God? All of a sudden, his man, his child, his creation has a stepfather. And the Bible said that God gave the earth to the sons of men. He gave them dominion over it. He gave it to them to be God over. But when he turned and gave that dominion to Satan, look where it left 
God. It left him on the outside looking in. He can't do anything down there. He had no legal right to do anything about it. Could he manipulate and operate? No, because he'd be doing the very same thing that Satan did in the first place. And if God had injected himself illegally into the earth, what Satan intended for him to do was to fall for it, pull off an illegal act, and then turn the light off in God and subordinate God to himself. What question I had when I read this, I'm wondering if there is a a forgetfulness here or not acknowledging the fact that God is sovereign. In spite of all this happening, God is sovereign. Nothing caught God off guard. He knew this was going to happen. In fact, again, Jesus was slain, the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. Scripture says that. Scripture says nothing about God was unable to do anything. He was left on the outside looking in. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to see really quickly that God was not on the outside looking in. In fact, God sent plagues to Egypt. God was able to judge the Israelites in the wilderness. He he was the one that sent the vipers, by the way, or the serpents, and that caused the bronze serpent to be put up on a pole. And that's a typology that's pointing back to Christ and pointing back to, for, um, to cleanse them from sin, to cleanse his people from sin. And that could only come through faith in Christ. If they looked on the serpent and believed, that's a type and shadow of the gospel. So this whole, I mean, we could go on and on and on for days on end talking about how God is sovereign. And we see this in the Old and New Testament and that God was, um, his His hands were not tied. This is really placing almost like and an putting man on par with God, if you will, in the word of faith movement. When you say things like this is that, well, you know, it just left Satan's now the, in, uh, the, the domineering factor here. So now God can't do anything. And so it's all on us. And talking about this whole legal right thing, which, you know, I've also said this too, the legal right issue is talked about, for example, in deliverance ministry. So there's little, there's little tiny nuggets there that, um, that will be denied. But these, I, I think that there is some correlation with word of faith there when you start borrowing some of this stuff. So Copeland goes on, he talks about in this first article that spiritual death lodged in that in that man's spirit and created a situation where God had to do almost the same thing to a man named Abram that Satan did to Adam. The only difference was God came on the scene. Instead of crawling in there on his belly like a snake and using the body of a snake to get in, he came up to the man, tapped him on the shoulder and said, I am almighty God. There wasn't any doubt about who was doing the talking because it knocked old Abram right flat on his face. And he really, unfortunately, the article gives this impression that he does not have a high high view of God because he says there's not anything that God can do about it. He has given authority in the earth to the Christians to do something about it, and they're not doing anything. They're just sitting around. The devil is using Christians' authority and just running wild with it, and that we ought to be governing with power of prayer, power of God, power of the witness, and power of the name of Jesus. And that's the way we're supposed to be ruling this earth right now with the love of God and in the name of Jesus. He continues, um, he says, listen to me very carefully because I want you to get this. There had to be a man born who who could stand the test the first one had failed. Man was the key to the fall, and he was going to have to be the key to the redemption. God didn't have a right to get involved in it and do it, yet he was responsible. And so he's the one who's going to have to do it. This had to take place. There had to be a man and it had to be all man. He couldn't just be part man because that's not legal. He had to be all God. He couldn't just be part God because that wouldn't work because God created the man that fell. (laughs) I'm telling you, I read that, that statement right there and I immediately thought, wow, that sounds like what happened in the garden, you know? 
I mentioned that before. This, it, no, it's a serpent's fault. No, it's my wife's fault. No, it's someone else's fault. Well, now it's God's fault because he created the man. That And he says that the responsibility is in the hands of God. This is what Copeland says. He didn't have to fall. God made that man to where he was capable of not falling. He gave him the authority to stand against Satan, but he did it anyway. So what kind of man is this going to be? God cannot go back to the dust of the earth and make a new one because he doesn't own the dust of the earth anymore. The men that are operating and own the dust of the earth belong to Satan. God doesn't have any right to butt in on it and say, King so-and-so on that first one I gave authority to, and I'm going to make another one. As he discusses the last Adam in this first part of the article, he says um, that God's. Uh, this is what God's plan was, that he used his right that Abraham had given him, and he caused a creature to be conceived from him inside the womb of a virgin. And he says, this man is a carbon copy of the one that walked through the Garden of Eden, And he says, this man is not an immortal man. He says, right at the most crucial moment of his ministry, he's ministering with the word of God and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. He did not use any of his divine privileges to minister while he was in his earthly ministry. I'm going to read that sentence one more time. Kenneth Copeland says, Jesus did not use any of his divine privileges to minister while he was in his earthly ministry. But here's the part he says I want you to get. When he said it is finished on that cross, he was not speaking of the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption had just begun. There were still three days and three nights to be gone through before he went to the throne. What was finished? The Abrahamic covenant had come to a close. The final sacrifice was hanging on that cross. So as we get to part two, again, we're hearing echoes of Kenyon in these articles, and it's also titled the same as his book, (laughs) But in part two, Kenneth Copeland goes on to reference 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, and he said, He who knew no sin was made to be sin. He did the same thing that Adam did in the Garden of Eden, exclamation point. And he called it Adam's treason, which that's also what Hagen called it. They referred to it as, as high treason that Adam committed. He put himself and made himself obedient unto death, and the same thing happened to him that happened to Adam, spiritual death. And he says, now listen, if it had been a physical death only, it wouldn't have worked. And if he hadn't died spiritually, that body never would have died. And he does reference 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit. Well, now you can't get someone justified or made righteous in the spirit if it wasn't first unrighteous. The righteousness of God was made to be sin. He accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit. And at that moment, he did so. He cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Copeland says the Lord uh, told him special revelation when he asked about uh, the serpent, bronze serpent on the pole. He claims that the Lord told him because it was the sign of Satan that was hanging on that cross. I accepted in my own spirit, spiritual death, and the light was turned off and made to be sin. He's saying that, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself told him this. As he continues on and talks about the three days and three nights in the, in the uh, belly of the earth, he says, you've never let Jesus die, is what he's saying to the readers. Therefore, you've never let yourself live. Jesus hanging on that cross, eternity is hanging in the balance. For an instant, a moment has happened where the whole of this thing is hanging. Oh, if there's some way for Satan to win it, now is the time. If there's some way to take it, now is the time because God has had his last chance. There is no more sacrifice beyond this because God has given himself. There's not any farther that God can go because that is part of himself hanging on that cross. And the very inside of God hanging on that cross is severed from him. And in that moment of severing, the spirit of Jesus accepting that sin and making it to be sin, he's separated from his God. And in that moment, he's a mortal man capable of failure and death. He said, 
Jesus was capable of failure. Not only that, he's fixing to be ushered into the jaws of hell. And if Satan is incapable of overpowering him there, he'll win the universe and mankind is doomed. He says, don't get the idea that God didn't pay a price for you. And don't get the idea that Jesus was incapable of failure. Because if he had been, it would have been illegal. I'm just going to take a deep breath right there. Okay, so as we go on, he says, I want to show you that Jesus did not just go into the area called paradise because he knows that that's going to be an argument, especially where um, the thief on the cross is said that Jesus says to the thief on the cross um, that recognizes who Jesus is, recognizes that he was hanging on the cross because of his sin. And that was the punishment that was due to him. He um, when he's speaking to Jesus, Jesus tells him today. Uh, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. As Copeland goes on, he says, listen to this. God hath raised up Jesus, having loosed the pains of death, having loosed him from the pain of death. He was down in that pit and there he suffered the punishment for three horrible days and nights for Adam's treason. There's one little deed in here that Satan didn't quite realize. He's in there illegally. What? He, he goes on to make this argument, Copeland does in this article, saying that Satan took Jesus illegally into hell. Again, making hell sound like that that is Satan's kingdom, that that's where he hangs out and that's his playground where they like to torture people instead of it being where God has created a place for eternal punishment. He's saying that um, he's in there illegally, that Satan took Jesus illegally into hell because he was actually in right relationship with God. He said he had God where he couldn't operate because it was illegal. This man had not sinned. This man has not fallen out of the covenant of God, and he had the promise of God for deliverance. And Satan fell into the trap, and he took him into hell illegally. He carried him there, but he did not sin. And he says, when the command of God said, that's enough, loose him and let him go. Again, where is this in Scripture? We don't see this in Scripture. So this is being added, this this account of God speaking and saying the, the demons were wailing up on Jesus. And, you know, you heard Kevin Zadai say that the demons were tormenting and taunting Jesus, and Satan was taunting Jesus in his fictitious conversation he had with, with God. Um, that he was being whooped up on by by the demons and such in in hell. And then God said, that's enough. Loose him and let him go. And Copeland said, this man is the firstborn from the dead. Says Jesus was the first man to ever be born from sin to righteousness. He says the very first thing that this reborn man did. See, you have to realize that he died. You have to realize that he went into the pit of hell as a mortal man made sin. But he didn't stay there. He was reborn in the pit of hell and resurrected. He says, the spirit of God spoke to me and said something to me. I threw my Bible on the floor and I hollered, what? He said, I want you to realize this, a reborn man with his emphasis on man. And I played the clip, a reborn man. It was an old clip. A twice born again man defeated Satan. And then he says, you couldn't dare mean that that a, a born again man could do that. And he says that God tells him, oh, yeah, you're a reborn man. You could have done the same thing. I hope that the sobriety of, of, of these statements hits people. And I, and I pray that there is illumination and understanding through the word of God in truth and by his spirit that, that comes to people. Because these statements right here, no matter who says them, they're blasphemous statements. It's utter blasphemy to say such things and to, and to uh, denigrate the name of God and to make so much of Satan and to diminish God's power in this way. It's really sad 
It's really sad. And again, I was in the Word of Faith movement and had no idea that these teachings were were perpetuated. It was all these health, wealth, prosperity, you know, the authority of the believer that you have, your words have power, you got to name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, however you want to put it. But these types of teachings were not mentioned like this. They were not mentioned. Copeland, at the end of his article, he says, the Spirit of God will hover over that body and cause a new creature to come into existence in that body. He was talking about a born-again believer, a man that never existed before, just exactly like the one that was born in the pit of hell 2,000 years ago. He says, what is the gospel? Just exactly what I've been telling you about. I didn't hear anything about the gospel in here. Not one thing. Not one thing. Because 1 Corinthians 15 one through four, if you want to read through there, especially verses three and four, that's a really good, concise summary of the gospel. And Paul never mentions Jesus as part of the gospel that was that was um, necessary, that was fundamental. He never mentions Jesus descending into hell to continue to, to finish paying for our sins. He says he was crucified in accordance with scripture. He was buried and he rose from the dead in accordance with scripture. There's nothing there about him needing to go to hell to finish paying for our sins, to die spiritually, and to be born again. That is not in the Bible. And there will be this biblical gymnastics that's played with this. It's not there. That's another gospel that's being presented. That is another gospel. If what Christ did on the cross is not sufficient, that's another gospel. Period. End of discussion. And that's not according to the gospel of dawn. That's according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's according to scripture. Copeland says this as one last thing I want to share. And then I want to share some um, resources with you. And I appreciate you sticking with me. It says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He says that's what the New Testament's written about. That's what God called Paul up into heaven and showed him and revealed to him what happened from the cross to the throne. So I will leave the... Uh, the links to these articles just so you can have see them for yourself and to verify what I'm saying. Now, there are several resources I want to share with you. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of them. But there are one or two things I will read to you briefly before we end our time today. There is an article on a website called CARM that I found really helpful. The title of the article is Did Jesus Die Spiritually? And it does touch on some of the word of faith uh, quotes that you'll see here in print, as well as the refutation from Scripture as to why this does not match up with what Scripture says. And so I'm going to leave that here. Now, I do want to talk about some scriptures that are very important for us to consider and to ask questions with regard to this teaching. For instance, you have passages in Hebrews 9 that tell us that blood must be shed in order for the remission of sins. So when there's little made of the physical body and there's much made of the spiritual and that Jesus had to die spiritually in order for us to be fully atoned for 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 our sin— the Bible does not agree with that. When you hear Paul in in Scripture, he says, we preach Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. He doesn't say we preach Christ and him tormented in hell for sin. He says we preach Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel message. The cross is offensive. The cross is, is, is humiliating. Um, the cross is not... Even in the times when Jesus, in Jesus' early ministry, the cross, the Roman crucifixion was humiliating and people didn't want to talk about it, including the Romans didn't want to talk about it. When we see that, that Paul and the other apostles preached Christ and him crucified, that should help us to see right there what he did on the cross was sufficient. 
And anyone who says that it wasn't sufficient, the question needs to be asked, what gospel are you presenting? Because it's not matching up with scripture. And it really, and it essentially denies the sufficiency of the cross and saying, oh, there's more than the cross. You know that we need to focus, get get past the cross. Listen, there are times that on a daily basis that I, when I'm in my private time and I'm thinking about what the Lord did for me, I can't get over the cross. And what I mean by that is, and I will never get over what, what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. And that's a good thing because it reminds me every day, my need for him, my dependency upon him and why I need him as my Lord and savior. And why I'm so thankful that he cleansed me from all unrighteousness and that he has made me new. He has regenerated me and I can rejoice in that. I can rejoice even in this fallen world. I hope that that gives you some hope right there. I want to encourage you in that. The other scripture that comes to mind, like I said, there's several that come to mind, but Colossians 2 comes to mind where in Colossians 2, 14, he says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross nailed it to the cross. He disarmed principalities. In fact, Colossians um, 2, 13 through 15, I would encourage you to read that. But he disarmed the principalities. He made a spectacle of them is what some translations say. So this whole thing of saying, well, Jesus descended into hell, and there are different beliefs on that about what part of Hades that he went to and, and about what he said, for example, in First Peter three eighteen. Again, I would encourage you do Bible study. Ask your pastor about these these verses. Ask someone that is a that is your Bible teacher that is going to help you understand these better. But you'll see in these different passages that there are different things that people believe, and they're not salvific things when we look at them. But and there are people that may di- agree or disagree. But when you change the fundamental of the foundation, when you change the foundation of the gospel, and you go beyond the cross and to say, well, what was happened? What happened at the cross was not sufficient, basically, that the physical death, anybody could have done that. Anybody could have done that. But no, he had to go to hell. It, there, there had to be more paid. It just it wasn't just his blood. It had to be paid for, and he had to be whooped up on by Satan and all his demons because of a misunderstanding of hell, essentially. And then to make it sound like that he wasn't triumphant, that he wasn't triumphant. I mean, there's more made about this fictitious story about him being beaten up in hell than there is about being him being triumphant in hell and him going and, and saying, I have the keys now. I'm Victor. This is the victory that I have over sin and death. Because of Christ, glory to God because of Christ, because of what he did. Let's not make little of what Christ did and and make more of Satan, please. Thank you. That would be great. There was one particular verse I wanted to to talk about, for example, um, just to kind of help because there were lots of verses that are thrown out. I know George Pearson's mentioned a lot in his sermon that he did on this. And you'll see this mentioned, but there was one particular I wanted to focus on and just do a, a very brief exercise on it and, and share this with you. And I also want to talk about 2 Corinthians 5 before we end. 1 Timothy 3.16. Let me read this to you for just a moment because this is under the heading. When you look at this in some of your Bibles, you may see that it the heading it's under is the mystery of godliness. So in 1 Timothy Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 
a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. When Copeland and others teach on this particular verse, they will use it to say, well, he was justified in the Spirit or vindicated. So if he was justified, that means he had to be born again. They will use that verse in that context. When I looked up the word justified there or vindicated, the Greek word there means to demonstrate to be morally right or prove to be right. That was in the BDAG that I have. When I looked it up in the complete word study dictionary, this is what it had to say, and I thought this was very helpful. It says, the New Testament tells how being justified by God and declared just before him may be achieved in the lives of men. We are justified before God by Christ's grace through faith. When we receive Christ, we recognize God's right over us, and then we are made just. With our justification, God simultaneously performs the miracle of regeneration and changes our character. We do not then obey God because we are afraid of the consequences of our disobedience, but because his grace has changed our character and made us just. When we become the children of God, we exercise rights toward God and act as his children. We are thus liberated from the guilt and power of sin, but not from the presence of it. That will come later. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it is said of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, that he was justified in the Spirit or by means of the Spirit. In the appearance of the Spirit upon Jesus, there was the confirmation of the claims of the Son of God that he was the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Redeemer of mankind. This refers to the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him at his baptism and through the miracles which he performed in full agreement with the Spirit and with God the Father. The justification of his claims, however, was through his resurrection. The two phrases in 1 Timothy 3.16 must be taken together. God was manifest in the flesh. That was his incarnation. And then immediately after that, we read, justified in the spirit. This means that through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which came upon him, his claims for himself as the God-man were confirmed. He was justified refers to the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son in his pre-incarnate state, and God the Holy Spirit. Note that the word theos, God, has no definite article before it and refers to the triune God who was by the second person, the incarnate Christ, the God-man. He was confirmed as such by the descent and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Later, Christ proved his deity by his works, death, and resurrection. What Christ left behind with the Father when he became the God-man was his glory, the recognition he received in heaven for all that he was. This glory he regained as he ascended to the Father. His deity was proven by his words his works, and his resurrection. Now, I thought that was super helpful for 1 Timothy 3.16 because Jesus was not born again in hell, and that verse does not prove anything about him being justified in hell. So I wanted to share that. And then the last thing I want to share with you today, uh, when I was looking up as far as what does it mean that Jesus became sin for us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, because that is one of the pivotal verses that they will go to in this word of faith teaching to say, well, Jesus became sin for us. So if he became sin, that means that he took on Satan's nature and that he had to go to hell and he had to suffer. And and your atonement wasn't finished until he went to hell and he suffered for three days and three nights. And then God said, it is enough. Forget the fact that he said is finished, but then they want to say that that that, uh, pertains to the Abrahamic covenant and that that was finished because he fulfilled the law. But God made him who knew had no sin to be sin for us. When we see that uh, so in him in the second part of that, so in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word impute there means to ascribe or attribute it to someone. So on the cross, our sin was imputed to Christ. 
that is how Christ paid our sin debt to God. He had no sin in himself, but our sin was imputed or attributed to him. So as he suffered, he took the just penalty that our sin deserves. At the same time, through faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Now we can stand before God sinless, just as Jesus is sinless. We are not righteous in our in our we are not righteous in and of ourselves. But Christ's righteousness is applied to us. So it really, I and this is the view that I would agree with the interpretation of it, is that it's it harkens back to the Old Testament too and the type and shadow. So when the offerings were given, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, when those were offered, what would happen is that the person would lay their hand on the animal they were bringing to be sacrificed on their behalf. And those sins were were symbolically laid upon that animal on behalf of that person. Well, Christ is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. He is the spotless lamb. And so he took upon him, our sin was attributed to him. That's what that means to become sin. He did not, again, his nature did not change because that would not make him God any longer. If he takes on Satan's nature, then he is denying his own nature. He's denying his own attributes. That's not possible. That's another Jesus. I'm sorry, but that's another Jesus. When you, when you believe those things like that, when you, when you believe, and, and if you hear that teaching and you say, no, that's true, I believe that Jesus died spiritually and that he had to be born again. But for your sin, because it wasn't complete on the cross, that's another gospel. And we need to be willing to love people enough to say, that's not what Scripture says. And Scripture is the foundation of truth. If you're a born-again believer, then Scripture is your foundation. It, it's not what Kenneth Copeland says. It's not what I say. It's what Scripture says. And what Scripture says is that it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. With nothing mentioned in there about him dying spiritually in hell and being beaten up by Satan and his demons and his cohorts. And that he had to, to be born again. Nothing about that is in scripture. I hope that you have found this helpful today and I will share some references with y'all list some that maybe I didn't talk about in here in this episode today that maybe have helped to you and maybe provide some more insight for you as far as your study of scripture. But this is a, this is a subject like a subject like this is worth talking about because we we need to care about the truth and when there are teachings like this that are perpetuated over and over and over again, and essentially diminishing the word of God, diminishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. These these are things that are worth contending for the for in the faith. This is worth contending for. This is worth standing up for and saying, no, actually, that's that's not what the Bible says. And that sounds like another Jesus. And that sounds works-based. That's a works-based gospel when that's not sufficient enough. And then, and then creating, you know, there's all kinds of different beliefs in the word of faith, the little God's doctrine, which uh, Kenyon did not hold to is what, from my understanding, um, just different aspects. It's not just the health, wealth, and prosperity. There's other things that are highly problematic that really make much of man and less of God. We as the created being need to remember our place in in the kingdom of God and remember who is God and that we are the, the lump of clay. We are the created being. Yes, we're created in his image. We have value because of Christ. That's why we have value because of Christ, because of God. The moment that we begin to put ourselves in this place where we are on the same par as God, and we focus on our dominion and what we can do. Um, we have a we are 
we are really adopting um, and holding on to to Satan's nature. I mean, that's a sinful way to be. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's idolatry. It's self-idolatry. So we have to remember our place in the kingdom of God. We must remember what the true gospel is and be willing to stand up for the truth, no matter who's saying it, no matter how many years they can claim to, to be a ministry, no matter how many followers they have, no matter how books they've written, no matter how popular they are, what ultimately we are to do, we are to defend the gospel. We are to stand up and to proclaim and to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ because we love people and including we love people enough to tell them the truth. So proclaim the gospel, my friend, proclaim the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, because you know what? It's sufficient. And the word of God is sufficient. And with that, I'll leave you for today. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have and uh, you've you found it beneficial or helpful, I hope that you'll consider leaving a five-star review. And if you want to reach out to me, you can email me at dawn at lovesubscribe.com. Until our next time together, be blessed today by the truth of God's word and by the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.